0: Welcome back to Fireside, a podcast from FS Investments. My name's Kara O'Halloran. I'm a director on our investment research team here. And today we're gonna talk about something that a lot of people have been talking about for the last year and that really impacts almost everybody and that is the housing market. I think most, if not everyone out there has heard about just how red hot the market is right now. There are stories about people buying properties sight unseen, waiving inspections is almost the norm. It's really just crazy out there. So I am excited to dig into what caused this really red hot market, whether we are in another real estate bubble, and where we think things can go from here. So I am joined today by Andrew Kors, who is another director on our team who focuses a large part of his time on the real estate market, and Lara Rehm, our chief US economist. Welcome.
1: Hi. Hey, Kara.
0: So to me, the housing market has really been one of the more surprising side effects of the pandemic. Um, in a way, it makes sense. We all sat at home for the better part of a year. I know I became very critical of my space. Um, but there was also a lot of economic uncertainty, especially back in you know March of 2020. There are risks of even just touring other people's homes or allowing people into your home to tour. But I think a lot of these trends really started before the pandemic. So, Laura, I want to start with you, um, as always, to walk us through the macro backdrop of what has helped create this market.
2: 100%. Um, I think it, this. there's no market that really has included virtually every narrative of the pandemic economy like the housing market. And one of the hallmarks of that is just the extraordinary growth that we've experienced since the bounce that we had in the third quarter of 2020. So we have this massive decline. The growth has been just extraordinary. It continues to track at levels far beyond our potential GDP growth. And specific to the pandemic has been this big shift in workers, right? We've had people moving from urban centers to the suburbs. People in the suburbs moved to the exurbs. The very expensive uh, cities saw a lot of movement and migration to lower cost localities or lower tax localities even. And finally, one of the big policy responses to the pandemic was the Fed policy of lowering interest rates. Um, And these rock bottom interest rates have fed through to housing one of the most interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy. So clearly, pandemic forces have driven housing from a strong market to just over the top. But very quickly prior to the pandemic we saw housing already experiencing structural tailwinds Um, I'm sure Andrew's going to go more into some demographics but um, you know the household formation uh, trends were already pointing to uh, the need for more houses and construction has lagged Um, so for all of those reasons, um, housing was already experiencing um, strong tailwinds, and that those have just been fueled exponentially by the pandemic.
0: So, Andrea, I want to talk about some of the the crazy stats out there. I know you have some interesting uh, supply and demand stats. I just bought uh, my first home, and I honestly felt that there was a period in time where I was going to have to be sitting on the front steps before these properties went on the market in order to find one. It was so, so competitive. So, you know, anecdotally, I experienced that. But walk us through a little bit about, you know, what's going on in today's market.
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, congrats on your big purchase. Oh, thank you. Very exciting. Thank you. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so I think, um, you know, lo- just like we've seen in, in the broader economy, um, what's going on in the housing market is really a combination of demand and supply factors that have kind of combined to create this this kind of perfect storm for, for a red hot market. Um, and as Laura said, it really is to me the macro narrative that encapsulates a lot of the pandemic trends that we've seen Um in a lot of different sectors of the economy. Um, So on the demand side, even pre-pandemic, you had millennials, which have been sort of the sleeping giant in the housing market for years. Young millennials are finally hitting those peak household formation years. Um, It's happening a little bit later than other generations. We're we're
0: buying too much avocado toast. Isn't that 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 what they tell us? That's right. We (laughs) can't afford houses because we bought too much (laughs) avocado toast. Those two products are always substitutes (laughs) for each other. Yeah, yeah. That's what what all the articles said. Stop buying your Starbucks coffee.
1: So you have this big cohort of millennials, um, finally, a little bit later, like I said, than other generations, but they're finally starting to to form households and look to buy a home. Uh, And then, of course, interest rates, which which have been going lower for years, but really plunged in 2020, uh, which helped uh, keep affordability intact, even as housing prices uh, rose. Um, So you have demographics and interest rates, which are really those core secular tailwinds. Um, And then the pandemic hit, and everyone's stuck in their homes, uh you had the government pump 5 trillion dollars of stimulus into households which kind of kept uh the fiscal state of the household afloat um so this combination of fiscal stabilization and uh a new uh a newfound appreciation for you know every uh, extra square foot of space um you know of having outdoor space uh really created this unexpected surge in demand that really started right away in in April of 2020 um and then, of course, you have the supply side as well, um, and that's a mixture of factors that are both secular, you know, long-term, um, as well as, as some pandemic-driven uh, factors. The biggest secular factor uh, that's, that's, that's really driving the supply side is a significant underbuilding during the 2010s that has really le- uh, left us underhoused, um, and certainly has left the market uh, unequipped to deal with this large surge in demand. So for context, during the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s, in each of those three decades, we built roughly 41,000 new homes per million uh, people, right? So 41,000 new homes each decade per million population. In the 2010s, we only built 21,000 per million people.
0: And is that just kind of like a hangover from the great financial crisis? Or, you know, we're What's driving? That, yes, it's,
1: so it's it's a lot of things. It's home builders were really scarred by the housing bubble um, when you know land prices went through the roof, and you know everybody felt like they needed to go buy land to build new homes. And then the crash happened, and home builders felt the need to be um, much more um, conservative with their. Assumptions of, of of home price growth of their ability to sell houses. So that's one reason then of course the demand side as well um, the the global financial crisis really um, Hit these older Millennials hard um, These people who were just entering the workforce and then had to go through this really scarring recession um, Obviously we saw it in in GDP data. The economy never really recovered to its pre-crisis trend um, and so the demand side was hit as well. So you had um, home builders who were unwilling to kind of go out there and, and, and take risk, and you had the demand side that was really hurt as well. And that contributed to this, what we saw for a decade, which was really half the number of homes that we should have been building uh, were actually built during the 2010s. Um, so that's, like I said, the big kind of secular uh, trend that's kind of hit home uh, you know, in 2020 and 2021. And then, you know, the pandemic really had an acute impact uh, on supply of both new homes and existing homes. Supply chain disruptions that we've talked about and labor shortages have challenged new construction. And then the pandemic really hit the willingness of people to sell their homes. Like you said, you didn't really in, in summer or fall of 2020 want somebody touring um, your house. And of course, there's just broad, you know, financial uncertainty around the pandemic that people may not have wanted to make such a big financial decision. So there's a lot of factors here that have kind of combined to um, create what has now been 17% year over year home price growth, which hasn't happened since
2: 2004. Lumber prices. where Shock. Yeah, yeah.
1: They're back, I think, uh, to n- not quite pre-pandemic levels yet. But um, it's been an extremely volatile marketing has made it really hard for builders to to plan
2: yeah i'm sure
0: and and speaking you know on the demand side i know i was looking at things that i never would have thought to look at pre-pandemic i'm like okay well i need if i can't have a designated home office i at least need a workspace with a good zoom background and place for the pandemic peloton that i bought so you know all this (laughs) stuff that wouldn't have crossed my mind um you know a year or two ago um yep
2: does Grubhub deliver to you? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Checking out the <laughs> yeah, real
0: estate. 100%. Um, all right. So we touched on the great financial crisis a little bit, and 2008 is really still fresh in a lot of people's minds. It was not all that long ago. And if we look purely at price appreciation, you just said 17% year over year price growth. The, the question obviously comes up are we in another bubble?
1: So, despite that data, Right now, is this, this current environment is significantly different than what we saw uh, pre-global financial crisis. And I'm going to just quickly go through two reasons why we see this as a really hot market, but certainly not a bubble akin to what we saw in 2004 to 2006. So the first uh, reason is affordability. We like to think of housing in terms of prices. Uh, people like to quote, you know, the median home price or, uh, you know, home price growth. Uh, But really, a lot of buyers focus on the mortgage payment when assessing how much house they can afford. So if we think about it in that way, the average mortgage payment right now is roughly 16% of average family household income. In 2005, it was 25% of household income. So that is a significant difference in terms of how much uh, coverage a company has to, to, to pay their mortgage debt service um and the and the big factor there as lara mentioned is interest rates which have flown through to uh mortgage rates. So today you can get a 30-year fixed mortgage rate for below 3%. Just 3 years ago that was 4.8%. So I managed
0: to time mine to that like little spike in interest rates that we had in March. Yeah, you've uh, always been good at timing the market. Oh Kat. yeah, that's yeah. me. That's what I'm known for. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh so 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 just for reference 4.8 to 3 for the average family buying the average home that's a savings of almost $4,000 per year on mortgage payments. Um, so you have low rates that have really allowed home prices to go up without really hitting affordability when you look at um, you know, that monthly mortgage payment. And then the second thing we look at in, in, you know, when, when we're trying to, to spot a bubble is, is the amount of debt in the system, right? Households are in a much healthier financial position today than they were pre-global financial crisis. Consumer leverage is near a multi-decade low, whether you look at it as a percentage of household assets or as a percentage of GDP. Um, You also have lenders that are much more careful with who gets a mortgage. So less than 5% of uh, borrowers getting mortgages today have a credit score below 660, 5%. In 05 and 06, that was almost 25 percent of people getting mortgages. I
2: remember those days. Mortgage for everybody. Yeah, yeah, you get <laughs> a mortgage it it's like the, Oprah. Right. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, it was the
0: famous. Uh, <laughs> I'll never forget the Michael Lewis quote in The Big Short, and they said there were one refrigerator, broken refrigerator away from default. Yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, That'll always stick in my mind. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like hyperbole, but I'm not sure yeah. it was. I don't yeah. think it
1: was. So, <laughs> <of> it. <laughs> so, so you know, not only is 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 system aggregate leverage uh, lower. But the debt that is being originated is going to people with a much better ability to service that debt. And part of that is because mortgage rates are so low. Um, So I think when we look at this market compared to pre-global financial crisis, uh, the affordability metrics and the level of debt in the system are just completely different than, than what we saw 15 years ago.
0: All right, so we're not in another bubble, I feel good. Or or Andrew Kors is not calling for another bubble. (laughs) You know what that means, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 don't scare everyone. Um, All right, so let's talk about the future now. So July 26th, we got new home sales data that was well below expectations, um, I think well below May's rate and and significantly below the June 2020 data. Um, I already saw a handful of headlines calling for the end of the housing boom, definitively. So what is your take?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a tough question. Forecasting is always harder than uh, looking backwards. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it's particularly difficult to suss out the data right now, like it is in a lot of parts of the economy. Um, for example, like you said, we got new home sales yesterday that were surprisingly low, um, which at first looks like hey, maybe high prices are starting to to make people think twice about about wanting to buy a home. But what we're seeing is is builders are are capping sales. Um, because there's tremendous uncertainty around their ability to get the materials they need, to get the labor they need to actually construct these homes. So it's a really kind of dynamic and and complicated market right now. Overall, there are some signs that the market is in the beginning stages of stabilizing. I would not say normalizing. I would say stabilizing in terms of balancing supply and demand. Um, The inventory of houses available is starting to creep up a bit. Um, although it's still historically low, um, if you're somebody looking to sell, um, on one hand, it's a great seller's market, as we've obviously seen with the home price growth. Um, on the other hand, you see prices going up 17% annually, and you're saying, "Hey, you know what? Maybe I want to wait this out another year and see if I can get another 15 to 20% uh, premium on my house." Um, so that's complicated. Um, on the demand side, I'd still consider demand from home buyers voracious. Um, The reopening of the economy doesn't seem to have diluted people's desire for more space, at least not yet. Um, Again, there are some early, early signs of balance in the market. Um, In Q1, 60%, almost 60% of homes on the market received at least three offers. For context, the normal number during a normal environment would be roughly 25% or so. Um, That started to come down a bit, which again is a sign of better balance between supply and demand. Um, We've also seen in in some of these consumer sentiment surveys, um, the percentage of people who consider this a bad time to buy a house is at its highest since the 1980s. Um, Laura and I were just talking about this earlier, whether that means that people uh, will actually follow through and, and, and not look to buy a house is up for debate. Um, you might think now is a bad time to buy a house, but you might also think tell me that. in two years might be a really time, to, really bad time to buy a house. Well, but, so. I think, but I think
2: I think the demographics that you talked about. The I mean, I I laugh at the phrase housing formation. I feel like the baby boomers just called it starting a family. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like a very clinical description yeah. of like a really happy <laughs> event. But but uh, we know that that's been delayed, and that there's yeah. going to be this demographic demand. You yeah. know, I mean, yep. Yeah. Contrary to another, you know, millennial narrative, people can't live in their parents' basements forever. So yeah. I think even more and more they're wanting to. And this years,
1: really comes back sorry. to kind of the, the broad financial position of the consumer, right? A lot of these millennials would have loved to buy a house, you know, five or 10 years ago. But the state of the economy and the timing of the global financial crisis made it really implausible. And, you know, with, with the consumer in such good financial shape right now, it's become, uh, you know, much more attainable for a lot of people. And that's, I don't think that's going away anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so one thing I'm curious about is we we definitely Laura touched on this. We saw this migration of people from cities to suburbs, suburbs to exurbs whatever and people even moving completely geographic locations because of this availability of remote work. What if that pendulum swings back? What happens?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's, it's that's that's the that's the you know, 5 trillion dollar question. I don't know. I just put a big dollar amount on it. But um that's 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 a huge question in the market, right? Um you look at a lot of these cities like Austin like Denver, like Charlotte, they call it the smile cities because it kind of goes from, you know, Mideast coast down to Texas and then back up, you know, Midwest coasts. A lot of these Sunbelt, more affordable cities, uh, or used to be more affordable, um, have been really attractive because, like we've said, um, a lot of knowledge workers, white collar workers, have been able to be much more flexible with their work environment and have said, hey, you know what, Um, instead of spending $600,000 for uh, a thousand square foot studio in New York, I can go spend that money and get a beautiful three bedroom in Austin or Dallas, Texas, um, and pay fewer taxes on it as well, which is always nice. Um, so the relocation buyer has been a fundamental driver of this housing market. And the way I see it is it's really going to be a power struggle between, um, workers and companies? And how much can these people in the tech industry, in the financial industry, uh, in the law industry, how much, um, you know, bargaining power are they going to have to work remotely, uh, you know, permanently in the future? And that doesn't only have an impact on the housing market, it has an impact on, you know, commercial real estate, on the office market. Um, yeah, it's a whole separate podcast, Abs- Oh, There's definitely. Podcast. My wheels are turning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but I think it speaks to, you know, Um, this broader trend of like how much, uh, bargaining power do, do, do workers have today? And, uh, you know, will these workers be able to work from home permanently? And if they can, I think we'll continue to see this, this broad migration from pricier cities like New York, like San Francisco to, uh, less expensive cities.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to thank you both so much for joining me today. I thought that was a fascinating conversation. Andrew, I know you just published a research note about this. Um, I admittedly did not understand the title at first. Uh, It's called The Race for Space, uh, Analyzing the Red Hot Housing Market. Um, But I get it now. Uh, One line in. I got it. I got it. It makes (laughs) sense. Um, So that is available on fsinvestments.com. But thank you both so much. Yeah. always fun.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Kara.
0: This podcast is brought to you by FS Investments. If you found this helpful, subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they are available.